This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 106, Movements of Fire and Shadow. I always worry when we get the word shadow in a title. I'm just saying. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, this time there there was some actual title significance, at least with the word shadow. We saw shadow technology. That we did. Anybody yep. else get the feeling that we're in the middle of a serious story arc? I'm just asking. <laughs> Boy, howdy. <laughs> and it ends on a cliffhanger. Uh, so Steven flipped his lid. <laughs> Oh, did he? <laughs> he did. He was just like, cliffhanger ending. They don't usually do cliffhangers. Holy crap. So he was very exciting, exciting, excited. He said he said it was like a season ending cliffhanger. And he says he has a sense that he might know what's happening, but he refused to say anything about what his guess was. <laughs> okay. Well, funnily so. enough, at the last minute, TNT scheduled a break between uh this episode and the next so <gasps> in a sense it kind of is a season finale well, if hey, you hey. call a season like a few weeks or something like that but anyway <laughs> yeah movements of fire and shadow this is the fourth episode in a row that's almost sort of come right on top of the previous one and centauri prime is just the situation is just getting uglier and uglier and once again, B5 feels big. Mm-hmm. It's uh, directed by John Flynn. Uh, you know, before we get into the like the recaps and all this other stuff, you know, uh, we found the rival to Stephen's affections for Mike Vehar last <laughs> week with Goran Gaijik. I do not recall over the years, John Flynn has directed a lot of episodes, but we never, I don't think we ever sort of zoomed in on him and said, wow. He is a, you know, he's he's definitely no no Mike Vahar, but I thought that Flynn did a great job with this one too. Or was it just all the script? I don't know. I mean, I I kind of might lead towards scripting and acting, but you have to have a, a good or at the very very least a competent director to to make those things still stand out and look good. I mean, there's I didn't notice anything that had sort of like the directorial flair but that's not necessarily a bad thing i mean you don't necessarily want every single episode to be all dutch angles and shots through other things and and that kind of stuff so um speak for yourself i I like dutch angels (laughs) okay fair that's totally fair Yeah, uh, Flynn's been the director about for nine episodes. Um, he's been cinematographer for like mm. a couple dozen episodes. That's so, right. Yeah, uh, I think certainly nothing leaped out at me as badly directed. Um, and I don't know how much of that was the fact that the um, story was going shoom, 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 and just not stopping. That may have been an advantage to his cinematographer background. But yeah, I I, I was too busy trying to keep up with everything coalescing around the discovery of this episode of realizing just what the what this race has been doing behind the centauri to uh kick over the anthills and start a war again race is you know there are a couple of different kinds of aliens mucking around down there Mm -hmm. interesting Mm -hmm. mysterious um there was one directorial faux pas that I 
couldn't help noticing, but we'll get to that in a bit. It's uh, it's a pretty picky detail, but um, I'll be curious if uh, Stephen saw that too. But we'll get to that. Uh, let's do our recap. If this is your first time listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, uh, we are talking about, as we said, movements of fire and shadow, and it might help you to remember... Basically, the plot elements from five years' worth of Babylon 5 that are relevant to our situation here. A fledgling interstellar alliance, risen from the ashes of a galactic war orchestrated by the Shadows and Vorlons, is on the verge of falling apart as the Centauri Republic has been attacking other races. As their role in the destruction of civilian transports was proven, a new war has broken out. Here's the catch. Mysterious forces are at work on Centauri Prime, and not everyone, especially Prime Minister Londo Malari, knows why these attacks are happening. Londo and his former enemy, Narn Ambassador Jakar, went to Centauri Prime to get to the bottom of it and were promptly dumped in a jail cell. Interstellar Alliance President John Sheridan has been trying to keep the conflict from escalating, but had to commit to defending the Alliance against the Centauri. Meanwhile, Lita Alexander, a human telepath who was genetically modified by the Vorlons, has been steadily working to save her fellow human telepaths from Earth oppression ever since her lover and kind of sort of cult leader Byron was killed in a conflict with Earth's Psycor. That was the shot. Here's the chaser. In this episode, <laughs> boom today and the expectation of boom tomorrow. Things get ugly for the Centauri on B-5, and a Centauri warship with no life signs, that'll be important later, attempts to blow up the station jump gate, which gives station captain Elizabeth Lockley a fair bit to do for once. Meanwhile, Sheridan has committed the White Star Fleet to the war on the Centauri Republic, but fails to convince the Drazi and Narn governments not to attack Centauri Prime. He finds out, after they're already on the way, and personally takes the fleet out to try to intercept them. On a mission of mercy to the Drazi homeworld, Dr. Stephen Franklin and Lita discover, after some scary telepathic badassery, that there are no Centauri piloting the aggressor cruisers, only leftover shadow remote control technology. After being knocked out and unknowingly probed by mysterious aliens, Londo finally meets with the regent whose conversation is no more encouraging than the last one. Someone has made the regent disable the planetary defenses just as the Drazi and Narn begin their attack. Oh, and Delenn and Lanier are no help. After a quick mission to Minbar to propose the creation of newer, bigger, White Star-class ships, they're spotted by Centauri and shot down in hyperspace. Way hey hey, just an ordinary day. Did they actually <laughs> make it to Minbar? I thought they were on their way there. Yeah, me too. I thought that they were on their way back, but, you know... It's not clear. It's not clear, and it's really not important because... <laughs> nope. They're just sort of tumbling True. in space now. Yep. <laughs> all beat up. Yeah. Where do you all want to start? We've got Centauri... I, I want to start with the Drazi being complete jackholes. That's where I want to start. <laughs> <laughs> just, all right. Well, to be Fair, that's kind of been their modus operandi for 90% of our interactions with them. It really has, but this just brought it home. I don't I don't know why that tiny little detail is the thing that stuck out to me the most from this quite good episode, I thought. But just the idea that that because once again, I didn't remember what was happening in season five, you know, broad strokes, yes, tiny details, no. So I did not remember about the, the shadow technology giant bean things that uh, that were, <laughs> were cap, uh, controlling the ships and stuff. So when, when Lita 
mind zaps the guy and is like, she sees something and says, take me there right now. I was I was just as excited as Stephen probably was sitting next to me on the couch being like, ooh, where are they going? What are they going to find? And just the idea that this stupid race who's just uh, fighting like children within this alliance that they have supposedly joined once again has <laughs> screwed everybody over by keeping really important information to themselves because they want to profit off of it, even though many of their ships are being blown up left and right. Um, and if they all work together, maybe they could have, you know, come out of this way earlier. It's anyway, Razzies equal jackholes. Yeah. Factions, that... go, factions gonna faction. I mean, JMS even put it in a little later in in another line, pointing out that the Drazi are not going to stop because they want revenge, not because they want to stop hostilities or get things straightened out. No, at this point, they want revenge. They want to punish the Centauri. They are, you know, pulling together themselves in the Narn and whoever, who knows if any other races joined in or not. For the sole purpose of pounding, you know, the Centauri home world full of civilians into a pulp because they can. So, yeah. yeah. Season four ended with the promise of a brand new interstellar alliance that would endure. But wait, no, it ended with an episode looking into the future and highlighting that Alliances are really, really, really tough to maintain, and bad stuff is going to happen along the way. This entire crisis, if people would just work together and dial back on, as Jakar put it, the enlightened self-interest, and actually, or actually, actually employ enlightened self-interest, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in in this episode, but we are. And it fascinates me that uh, you know, we'll get to Sheridan in a bit, I guess, but uh, it fascinates me that as he's more and more boxed in, Sheridan and Bruce Boxleitner continue to get more and more fired up to try to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to try and call out that this is crazy, this is stupid, this is wrong. We're doing what we have to do, but we're not doing what we should be doing. Yeah, that's that's fun to watch. I mean, I. I I feel kind of almost terrible saying that because he's he's upset for a very good reason and things are just going off the rails. But it is nice to see him uh, just fired up again and mm -hmm. really getting to sink his teeth into some 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 meaty stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. he's he's back in a he's back in a war situation. You know, yep. he spent the first half of this season, you know, trying to be the top diplomat, pulling this alliance together. And, you know, now that things are falling apart and conflict has broken out again, the captain's back. He, he's got to use, you know, his skills in thinking as uh, a military leader as well as the newly minted uh, political leader. Yeah, um, I question the realism of President Jetpack riding fire at the head of a White Star fleet. <laughs> Um, but it I does. probably would there, with any other captain. Well, well there's, and there's never been an interstellar alliance before. They're making up the rules as they go along. Well, and mm. and certainly, even though I question the, the sort of sort of the lot the story logic of it, it is good to see him in that role again. It's weird seeing him in a business suit doing that, but <laughs> but it's good to it, it's yeah. good to see him active in, in, in that way. I think one of the reasons that I am per 
pretty okay with it is the fact that to to a certain extent the formation of the alliance itself was a little bit a cult of personality around him and and Delenn as well so uh, i think garibaldi is right when he says that you know it's sheridan is really the only one who has a chance of actually stopping this Good getting point. there in the mm-hmm. white star and actually i think garibaldi uses the phrase putting yourself in between them yeah and Centauri Prime. So uh, if he doesn't jump in his jetpack, as you so eloquently put it, if he doesn't doesn't strap that on and get there, just having a bunch of white stars in between might not do it. Right. And of course, you know, we keep going back to whole, well, I keep going back to Holy Writ, uh, Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, where Spock turns over command of the Enterprise to the Admiral, even though it's, it's still Spock's ship and stuff like that, you know, so, so... The bigger gun, as it were, sitting in the chair, does does have dramatic precedent. Going back to the jackholes, um, <laughs> let's let's yep. let's wait. Let's go in on that Drazi subplot a little bit more. Veer asks Doctor Franklin and Lita to go to the Drazi homeworld, which has no name. It's just the Drazi homeworld, which I find mildly annoying, but it I would like probably. That. Well, it, 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 I'm sure it's got a name, but, uh, you know, every once in a while they call Centauri Prime in this episode the Centauri Homeworld. So I think JMS was True. balancing it out uh, fairly nicely. But anyway, Centauri bodies are not being returned as part of traditional uh, rules of war. And Veer sends Stephen and Lita on this mission of mercy. The first thing we find out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the first thing we find out is that Lita is done being taken advantage of and taken for granted. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that scene was so fun. Just like actually even from the beginning, before they even walked in, we uh, we get we get Veer. <laughs> Steven mm-hmm. just leans over and goes, stage direction, Veer, looking nervous or Veer, <laughs> which is <laughs> right. like good in point, a, in good a room with tiny Japanese cubbyhole beds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yep. Got to keep him keep him sequestered. Yep, totally. Uh, totally, just like a hotel, Babylon Five hotel room. Um, and then, and then, but when you get you know Lita and Doctor Franklin coming in, it's great because not only is she sitting there on the couch next to him, being just you know a real hard ass and just taking names, but uh, her body but, language is just right on point right from the beginning. Oh, so good. And then right next to her, you have Stephen going like he played that so well because it wasn't he could have mugged um which we know he's capable of uh, mm-hmm. but he just there's the tiniest hint of approval but not like he's not like you know wide-eyed acting he's not nodding at her there's none of that but you can tell like a little bit of body language on his part as well that he's just sort of like wow this is this is the new lena okay mm-hmm. here we go mm-hmm. love it <laughs> let's uh, talk a little bit about new lena she does a lot. She does a lot in this episode, and not all of it is nice, and not all of it is gentle. She is demonstrating more power than we've seen her do before. She forces a drowsy hitman to hit himself. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's one of those. That's one of those things that in dramatic tropes and all over all over the place about uh and possible real science i've never looked into it too deeply about if you hypnotize you, you can't convince somebody who's been hypnotized to harm harm themselves that mm-hmm. sort of thing mm-hmm. 
Lita exercising telepathic control over someone to make him shoot himself seems seems extra. Um, yeah, and I think that's the point. We have not seen much of Lita since uh, the end of the telepath arc in this season, other than her making her deal with Jakar. So, yeah, I think this is you know partly to show, as you said, she she's done. She she is completely done. She is not going to put up with anything anymore. And I think that's half of it. And I think the other half is just before they attacked, she had begun to glimpse something in the doctor, in the Drazi doctor's mind that she needed to chase down. And I think whatever glimpse she saw was so important. I think she got the idea that the shadows might be in on this or something devastating might be in on this. So, you know, she's ready to lash out. And take care of things and protect Steven. You know, yes, he gets one of them, but, you know, there's two of them and he's only got the one uh, firearm. So I I think part of it is to elevate both Lita as a character and uh, the seriousness of the situation. Mm -hmm. Like as as dark as as that is and as dark as it looks, uh, we did just have Steven shooting one of the other Drazi. So it's, you know, they, they both killed a Drazi. Her way of doing it just took a little longer and was a heck of a lot creepier but I, I totally agree with you Shannon if she got even the vaguest whiff that there was shadow technology involved that absolutely is going to be something that's going to drive her to to take extreme measures because you know that's that's what she was created for it's you know it's an icky thing to say but it's true yeah JMS made the point in online conversation around this time that for most of her existence on the show, Lita has not been a badass. She has not been hard. Remember when they were having the conversation on Mars about how she's not a good liar and she says, I'll I'll sue, I'll sue. And JMS says that that is in part the reason for the big, long Byron telepath arc. And what she goes through and how it changes her. Was that a price that as audience members, was that a was that a price worth paying? You know, the slower semi, you know, arguments among B5 fans about how effective that telepath crisis arc was. But it brings Lita to this point. Well, I wouldn't say that Lita hasn't been a been a badass before. She's, you know, been incredibly she's shown incredible power during the Shadow War. I think the telepath arc was necessary to show her change in attitude, which is the only difference between what she would do to shadows, what she had to do to other telepaths in the Earth Civil War versus what she did in this episode. I'm with that because, yeah, I mean, I always thought of her kind of as a badass. And that's not me remembering this and retconning it. Like, I just I just always thought she was awesome and tough uh, just because of, you know, what she what she lived through during the Shadow War and then what she did. But I I agree her the hardness. I do like that word that you use, Chip. That's something that was not there before. And I mean, I I guess it makes sense that that would come out of her experience with the with the telepaths. Um, it's yeah. I mean, honestly, it's it's kind of like she's just fed up, and I'm I'm there for this. <laughs> really am. <laughs> yeah. Was it too convenient that the Centauri ships that have been responsible for all of this stuff are, as they discover, 
remote controlled by shadow technology. I, I have to figure that there are probably several Centauri out there in the military forces who would be who would have been more than happy to go off and blow up Narn transports and Drazi transports, et cetera, yeah. and so on. But then you open up the, you know, the rumor mill, basically. So if they're off doing that, then probably more information is going to get back to, like, all of the Centauri people. And it seems like at this point that at least most of, of the Centauri folk don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still not, I still don't know if the, uh, if, 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 if that. The defense minister. Yeah. Yes. The defense minister. Thank you. I couldn't think of his, his title. I, I still, I. Ambassador I, 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 Jack Hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if he if if he knows what's going on or not. Um, but there's you could at least at this point you could make an argument that he doesn't know what's going on. And I think if there were any actual Centauri folk in ships blowing up Narns, no matter how happy they were to do that, uh, st- stories would get out, tongues would wag. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about those Centauri for a bit. It's a nice little bit of foreshadowing there that as the Centauri warship goes to try to blow up the B-5 jump gate, that they do a scan of it and find no life signs. And the initial read on that from the audience's perspective, as well as Captain Lockley, is suicide mission. You know, there's nobody on there because the Mm -hmm. thing's going to blow itself up and take out the jump gate with it. And that's just cray. The notion of blowing up jump gates that are expensive, that the entire hyperspace beacon system relies on these things being left intact. Uh, If you take out a bunch of them, it could be a crisis for everyone, including the Centauri. And for them to be doing that, you know, that's just nuts. Yeah, which I think is, you know, sort of the reason for the initial conversation between Sheridan and Lockley to establish to us, the audience, signaling, you know, we we know somebody else is working with the or behind the Centauri. And now we're being shown, but we haven't known their motives other than to stir up trouble. And now we see it's not just stirring up trouble. They're willing to destabilize the entire region for, you know, for whatever it is that they've got in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know that they that they suspected that there was somebody else in on it with them. I think maybe they just suspected there was a faction of the Centauri. Mm. Right. But but either way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but we the audience right. know that, that something else is happening. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We we know more we still know more than uh, Sheridan and company do, but Franklin and Alexander give Sheridan two or three, you know, potential explanations for what's going on and what the presence of shadow remote controls means and who, Mm -hmm. you know, could be somebody setting up the Centauri. It could be somebody working with, you know, selling the Centauri technology, all these other things. Sheridan, at the end of the day, realizes that the game plan was not Centauri gained something from these random attacks. It the game plan was chaos, chaos, and uh, gee, that sounds familiar. That, that sounds extraordinarily yeah. familiar. Right. Mm-hmm. I have to say that that uh, being the the particular flavor of nerd that I am, the thing that I quite liked about this, you know, their their willingness to blow up Jumpgate tech was how much extra information we got about Jumpgates and how they mm-hmm. work and the hyperspace beacon system and the fact that you can move the struts farther apart and which I think maybe we did know already, but I had yeah. forgotten. It was all like that was I was just eating that up with a spoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and plus we got to see Lockley um, in action again. We we got we got to see Lockley again. Period. 
Well, yeah, mm-hmm. but which is but, good. You know, but, speaking speaking of badassery, I mean, it was good to see her come back guns blazing, so to speak. Yep. The only scene that I it didn't part that I didn't like so much with her in it in this thing it was she's there with oh my gosh I'm blanking on his name Stephen will be so sad sad for him because he never gets a credit Corwin. Uh, Corwin, thank you. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. So sorry, Joshua Cox. Anyway, uh, so she and Corwin are there, heads together. And like she's asking him for details on the damage and stuff. And he's looking at the same screen that's right in front of her. Like she can't, like she doesn't understand what's on the screen in front of her. I just found that very frustrating. If they had been staged differently and she would have been uh, like, you know, off to the side, couldn't see it. Or or, or did he have his earpiece in? Was he getting that? it? But it was that was very it, it the direction at least did not make it look like that was the case at all. So I I found myself kind of rolling my eyes at that. But the information that they were passing back and forth was important for us, the audience, to know. So it just would have been uh, nicer to have a more elegant way to get that across. Mm-hmm. By the way, the directorial faux pas that I was thinking of was not Lockley and Corwin looking at the same screen and Lockley asking Corwin to explain the contents oh. of the screen. The directorial faux pas I had was the wreckage of the White Star Bridge. The camera slowly pans across and you get a full on look at the back wall of one of those flaming smudge pots. You see the flame, but you also see the pot. You see this high tech Minbari. It's not high tech Minbari. It's a bucket. It's a bucket with charcoal in it or something. Um, Uh, No, that was that was was cringeworthy. I did not notice that. Me neither. Things are getting bad on on Babylon 5, which, of course, gives us a reason to have Lockley back. Things are also bad on Centauri Prime itself. We get some fun with Jakar and Londo, briefly, but the Peter Jurassic and Nameless Extra performance as they flee the jail cell <laughs> after... Uh, Jakar regurgitates his <laughs> dinner. It's over the top. It's very extra, but I thought that that was a bravura performance. Actually, <laughs> it was good. Yeah, I had no, I had no problem with it. Um, but that's about it for fun. Mm-hmm. Everything else is just so, so deeply foreboding. We have uh, creepy aliens doing something to Londo that he is completely unaware of, and. The Regent is finally back, and it's still a pastel-free zone. (laughs) And it's sort of a repeat of the last time we saw the Regent in terms of foreboding messaging content. You know, things are going to be bad for you, Londo. You should enjoy your last, in this case, apparently hours. hours. Mm -hmm. Um, Free hours, yeah. So I thought that that was a little repetitive, but... It ends. He seems with... to be in in the kind of a state where repeating himself is not uh, unexpected. And yeah. Really, oh, yeah. and his line, you know, I'm glad I won't live to see what follows. I was just like, <gasps> yikes. Yep. Yep. And it ends with Londo looking scareder, I think, than I have seen him in the rest of the entire series. Even when uh, the Vorlon was the Vorlon ship was eclipsing the uh, sun at the end of the Shadow War, and he was asking Veer to kill him. When the regent tells Londo that he's shut down the planetary defenses and sent the fleet on a wild goose chase, Londo is terrified. 
No, mm-hmm. I agree. Because I mean, especially at the at the end of the the Shadow War or during the Shadow War, he's yes, he's scared, but he's stealing himself to 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 sacrifice himself in a way that will save his people. Because really, you know, that's the thing. Like he sees a way out for his people, and here. It's it's kind of the same situation. His people are about to be annihilated, he thinks, and there's no way out. Like it's it's too late. The defense grid has been turned off and uh-oh. Any other thoughts about all of the creepy stuff that happens to Wando in this episode and how Peter Jurassic plays the character in this episode? No, he's just good. Actually, I think one of the moments that I really, really liked is when he wakes up from his experience. So, well, I mean, so they're in the jail cell and they, you know, he's lying down to go to sleep and suddenly you have this huge flash and they're both unconscious. And Steven just goes, that was unexpected. And then uh, and then when the creepy aliens are, are working on him, Steven's just like, oh, look, it's the silence because mm-hmm. you've got to have a Doctor Who reference in there somewhere. Um mm-hmm. But when when that is over, uh, and that was that was competently directed and creepy and stuff. When it was done, though, I just thought his performance was amazing. His intensity in that, like you you know, he doesn't necessarily know what's happened. Maybe he remembers his quote unquote dream. Maybe he doesn't. But he just has this feeling that something is seriously seriously wrong, and that comes through in his performance. So, yeah. applause. Yeah, I, I think for me, you know, Peter Jurisic shows a lot of range uh, because there's not just uh, those scenes. There's the scene towards the beginning where he's telling Jakar, this is how I'm going to play this out. You know, this is how Centauri politics works and we'll be out of here by tomorrow morning. And I'm just sitting there going like, dude, oh, you have no idea. You have no clue at all. No one knows you're in there. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, that, that, that sort of thing. And plus... His ability to play off of the emperor, who is showing his madness for, you know, want of a better word, you know, the, the, um, his influence under his keeper, uh, and, you know, telling Londo pretty much everything without enough detail for Londo to have, a, you know, any idea what's going on. Those were scenes that really captured me in this particular episode. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts about this episode before we go into the jump gate? Oh, and uh, what did our control group think of it? Well, he at the very beginning, we had some some special effects like right off uh, in the cold open. He's like, you know, this, the effects have, have gotten a lot better over the years. This looks pretty good. Oh, those are pretty cool. Oh, like he just kept commenting on all of the different shots. So he was he was very much enjoying that uh, and was um I don't know what the word is, not necessarily delighted, but he was just like, oh, her, when Lockley started doing a voiceover. So he was kind of like, oh, yeah, she's back. Although he, <laughs> he did point out that it was he thought maybe the second time in a row that Lockley's first appearance in a while starts with her giving exposition by way of a captain's log. Like, that's just become her thing, I guess. <laughs> um, which okay. that was fine with me. It worked. Uh, but he he enjoyed this episode. He thought there was just a lot of space opera in it, like flying around and stuff, as he put it so eloquently. Um, he just said it was fun. And when the episode was over, he turns, he goes, we were one Zach away from getting a full cast bingo. He said we had Lockley <laughs> and Sheridan and Delenn and Veer and Lanier and Londo and Jakar and the Doctor Franklin. and Lita 
and Garibaldi. We even had fudging Corwin. He didn't say fudging. <laughs> we, he's like, we almost got there. Damn. It's a damn shame. I was hoping we would get there. That would be a rarity. <laughs> so he was he was he was really sad to just not see Zach even for a second. Um but uh, but on a more serious note, he just said this 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 is proper good stuff here. He's like he says it's a shame this show is ending because I feel like this is as good as it gets when it comes to Babylon Five. Although I suppose maybe because it's ending is why it's like this. But he just thought it was was just fun. Another good episode. Actually, what he said was it was fun. It was a good episode. Another good episode. Another good episode so he just appreciates that there's no moving of chess pieces right now stuff is happening and he is enjoying the heck out of it good well i I guess that's the point you know yes yes it's it's space opera but you know as chip said you know we are now like smack in the middle of a very heavy arc where everything is focused on just every single story every single thread in the last few episodes has been swirling around this issue of um the centauri and whoever is behind the centauri and uh the conflict well before we go into the jump gate we have omitted one line of conversation speaking of chess pieces being moved delin and lanier were moved onto a white star and were taken off the board true and I guess we do need to look into that, why it was necessary. Why do we need to put Delenn and Lanier in jeopardy? Maybe that will be answered in future episodes. But for the purposes of this one, did it feel a little out of place? I didn't think so. I mean, I I am just loving the scenes between John and Delenn so much these days. And we had another great one uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning when, you know, he's asking her to to do that. And... I don't know. I guess it, it made sense to me. They very clearly laid out, you know, we've been using these white stars for everything and we keep losing them and we're not getting any more. It's not like, you know, they're not or- entirely organic ships that are just growing, growing new ones. So um, the, the idea of a, of a more, I don't remember which class he said of that same type of ship, but uh, that's, that is an interesting idea to me. I find that intriguing. And I think he's Sheridan's absolutely right. That's not the kind of thing that you should just send over the, you know, interstellar, the interstellar Babcom, whatever. So, <laughs> so her going makes sense to me and linear going with her makes sense to me. So, yeah, I think this, you know, even though it's not named part one and ta- part two, this episode totally feels like a part one. Yeah. Uh, with And so I, I, it was not, I was not bothered by the Delenn subplot because, you know, it felt like, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's, it's another mini cliffhanger that sort of goes with the major cliffhanger that is going to be answered next episode. Yeah. Yeah. Still feels a little forced to me. And, you know, I'm not sure why in the middle of this crisis, I guess it's a credit to Sheridan that he's thinking long-term and past the crisis, but was this the time to send somebody off to make a deal for building some warships that are... No spoilers here, but there are not going to be brand new Earth-Membari hybrid warships in the next episode. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a little fast. Yeah. Yeah, but but it is something that, you know, Sheridan, as the political half of him, has to think. You know, Mm -hmm. even in this time of crisis, he's got to try and think, what are we going to do? You know, we need to start this conversation. Especially since they are just going into a war, like a war just started. So he's thinking realistically that they're going to lose more white stars. And 
And yeah, it's never too soon to get the the ball rolling. And, and who knows? I mean, the Centauri are a pretty pretty powerful race. Uh, this conflict could stretch on for a, a long time. So best to to get things moving. Good thought. Good thought. Well. I think it is time for us to prepare to go through the jump gate and to talk about uh, things in this episode that if we spoiled them, people would be very unhappy with us about. (laughs) Certainly uh, the control group. Uh, But uh, next week, the title of next week's episode, everybody would have known it. It feels kind of heavy to say it. It almost feels like a spoiler to say it. But next week's episode, as moderated by Erica, will be The Fall of Centauri Prime. I feel like it's not terribly spoilery considering the cliffhanger we got at the end. Well, this is true. This is true. So, yeah, it kind of seems kind of obvious that it's coming. But still, you know, that's the first that's literally the first uh well, not literally the first there was, you know, Zaha Doom. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's uh, that's next time. In the meantime, we have chat threads. You've t- surely discovered them by now at B5AudioGuide.com. We'd love your feedback. Hey, we're close to the end of this run. Even so, an iTunes review wouldn't be awful. We, <laughs> you you sure, mean an Apple sure Podcasts review. Oh, excuse me. Well, okay, uh, the <laughs> podcasting professional on this on this podcast is being pedantic here. Uh, yes, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even NPR says at iTunes. Uh, I'm just saying. Do they? Oh, some of their podcasts do not. So there you go. Well then. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go through the jump gate right now and continue to argue uh, podcast professionalism here. Uh, (laughs) But don't worry, there is not another ship coming through trying to blow up this jump gate. So stick around. We will be alive when we finish uh, crossing the event horizon. And we are back. And... Speaking of spoilers, right out of the gates in the credits, I certainly hope Stephen missed it. Guest starring Wayne Alexander as Drock. Um, <laughs> you know what he said, Wayne Alexander. I recognize that name, so he remembered Wayne Alexander mm-hmm. and not Drock. I think I'm not entirely sure what he meant uh, when he said that, but I think I think he was just talking about the name Wayne Alexander sounded familiar to him. Yeah, so. Yes, Wayne Alexander, who has been under many different kinds of makeup for us over the years, uh, mainly as Lorien. So I I, actually I had forgotten to to point that out to Stephen. Like, yes, you know that name because he's this guy. um, And I totally forgot. But I I don't think Stephen really remembers the name Drock well enough for that to have mattered. I mean, for somebody who is is better at keeping that sort of stuff in their head, then yeah, yeah, that that sort of gives away the game there. But eh, whatever. It does, but, uh, you know, as people who have seen this series before and have seen Crusade, where the Drock are the big bads uh, for the episodes that were made and things like that, you know, it it's just a, it's always been tough for us to keep in, keep out of the pre-Jump Gates stuff that, you know, it's the Drock, the Shadow Servitors that are behind all of this. There's that one little slip of the credits 
to spell it out for you. Uh, you know, it, it all gets spelled out in the next episode with the keepers and everything else. But that was just kind of it wasn't trying to hide the hair from Steven level of spoiler protection, <laughs> but I did cringe a bit. I do have an answer for why Delin and Lanier were sent on this mission to work on an Earth Minbari hybrid ship right now. And that's okay. because there had been already to this point a fair bit of advanced publicity for Crusade, the sequel series, which was was to be set five years in the future on a joint Earth Minbari warship. Mm-hmm. Delin and Lanier are sent on this errand not just to give them something to do to put them in jeopardy but also to do a little bit of advanced pr for crusade huh yep okay because the first the first ship will be the excalibur first one off the line that uh that gideon sense. that gideon flies yeah i also think there um i'm i don't remember everything that happens as far as uh Dylan and Lanier getting out of their situation but um i'm assuming that there is a little more of the pushing of Lanier to his you know obsession to keep Dylan safe and then you know morphing later on into his you know obsession into making that split second decision to try and kill Sheridan or let him die yeah splitting hairs yeah mm. yeah now and actually if I want to be super pedantic about it, it's the the Excalibur and its sister ship are not the first of the no? okay. uh, Earth Earth Mimbari hybrid type ships. There is the Valen from Legend of the Rangers to live and die in starlight. The okay. uh, the uh, the movie that sci fi uh, ran as a potential pilot for another B five series, and that would have been slotted in in between uh, B five and and uh, Crusade, but. Yeah, that's why Delenn and Lanier are going off on this mission. It's PR. Gotcha. So Londo's one day away from his keeper. So that repetitive foreboding, I think, is really going to make it hurt when it happens next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, it's you know that the, all of the, everything that the emperor is saying, regent, it, it, regent. It, it's one hundred percent true, and yet there's not enough information given for Londo to make any sense of it. You know, there, yep. there, there is nothing for him to act upon. There is no way for him to try and back out or get away. The gates have slammed on him and he doesn't even know it yet. There's nothing more frustrating than the line. Oh, you'll find out soon enough. Sigh. Yeah. And, of course, Lita's going to continue on this trajectory and uh, is going to take control of a whole Zocalo full of people in just a couple of episodes. And I think the Lanier and Delin excursion is also timed to really ratchet up the romantic tension or lack thereof between them. Uh, anything else, though, uh, as as we've been repeatedly saying, you know, the spoiler sections are getting shorter and shorter because there's just so much less to spoil. Yeah. A couple of small things that, you know, maybe could have been mentioned earlier. I'm not sure. Uh, but we see Jakar is still writing. You know, mm -hmm. he's, you know, instead of just sitting there, he has got his book out and he is scribbling more pages of what will be the next apocrypha to the book of Jakar. Mm -hmm. And... Also, at the moment, it looks like Garibaldi's pulled himself together a bit. 
like you know he, th- there is no sign of of him drinking there's no sign of him you know falling apart he is totally on the job at the moment i don't know if that's a result of a combination of you know zach's talking to him and the fact that he did fall asleep at the wheel and now it's a shooting war whatever the motivations are you know at at this moment at this very moment he seems to be back in control i would also mm-hmm. suspect that he's just too darn busy well yeah mm-hmm. yeah like this you know distraction just and and panic it for the world for the universe um mm-hmm. might be helping too yeah any other things to look forward to uh that are highlighted from this episode not for me just continuing to show it jms has said before when he's um answering questions about his writing style the severed dreams arc you know felt like sort of the the huge thing back in the day sort of the peak of things pulling apart and jms shows that just as interesting just as dramatic just as awful things can happen in the aftermath because what should have been peace has unraveled uh, you know things you know conflict continues and no matter how hard these people are working to try and stave it off it's getting the better of them i've recently i'm late to the party as with a lot of things i've recently started uh watching the expanse and there's some of that multiple governments sort of at odds with each other but people caught in the middle trying to do the right thing uh kind of thing i i get that sort of same feeling from where we are in babylon 5 right now that sheridan and jakar and delin are trying to hold on to everything when the forces of not even not even evil they're just the forces of history are lined up against them that's that's mm-hmm. sort of where this story feels to me at this point the forces of people peoples <laughs> yeah. the forces yeah, of people it, yeah and jms sort of you know makes that point with mentioning that the drazi and the centauri have been longtime economic rivals and of course we've seen the narn and centauri being longtime military rivals and the narn general is willing to jump right back in and start shooting at centauri again um even though those two planets are supposedly have made a peaceful accord and are part of the same alliance, old hatreds die hard, and it takes a very long time to kill them. Yep. And on that cheery note, we're going <laughs> to uh, take take your leave for a bit and uh, come back to you in two weeks with the fall of Centauri Prime. As ever, find us at b5audioguide.com, at b5audioguide on Twitter. We're grateful for you as we come towards the end of the series. And until next time, this is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Babylon 5.